Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. This is known as the Great Commission. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the summer, we are doing a sermon series called Sans Peril, Without Equal. If you've been here, you've probably been watching us go through this series. And when someone or something has been said to be sans peril, it means that they are literally the best in the world, or that they're a class above the rest. And each week, we've been looking at two people who are the best in their particular field. And we're not only looking at their success, but we're examining the qualities and characteristics that allow them to rise to the top. Then we're taking those qualities and characteristics and looking at them through a biblical lens, and we are asking the question, how does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics to further our walk with God and to better create God's kingdom here on earth? Last week, we talked about two of the greatest phenoms in math and physics. This week, we're talking about two of the greatest orators of all time, the Roman lawyer, Marcus Tullius Cicero, and the pastor and civil rights activist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We're gonna start with the lesser known of these two men, and then we're gonna move into the better known. So Cicero was born on January 3rd, 106 BC, in the town of Arpinium, which is located about 62 miles southeast of Rome in Italy. Cicero's name comes from the Latin Cicer, which means chickpea. And so his family, they made a fortune through the cultivation and sale of chickpeas, which means that Cicero was able to afford land. His family had land holdings, and he was able to go to school. And he proved himself to be an exceptional student. He learned Greek and Latin, and he also was educated in the teachings of Greek philosophy, poetry, and history. But of all the things that he learned in his education, perhaps the most important was his learning in rhetoric. And rhetoric is the art of creating persuasive arguments. Rhetoric is one of the three ancient arts of discourse, along with logic and grammar. 
Now, when we think of rhetoric, we often think of it as public speaking, but it's so much more than public speaking. Rhetoric is when someone is able to take a person who completely disagrees with them and bring them over to their side based solely on the power of their words. Cicero is considered to be one of the greatest rhetoricians of all time, and there's good reason for this. So eventually Cicero will train to become a lawyer. And once he's a lawyer, he takes on a case, it's his first big case, of a man who is being accused of murdering his father in order to profit from the sale of his father's land. Now Cicero believed that his client was being framed. And the person who he was blaming this on was a man named Lucius Sulla. Now Lucius Sulla, he was one of the most decorated Roman generals of all time. This was quite a claim. It was a bold claim. And Cicero, being only 27 at the time that he was trying this case, he was putting himself in grave danger because Sulla could have very easily had Cicero killed. But something that really defines who Cicero is is that he believes that you have to do the right thing regardless of the dangers that you might face because doing the right thing is always the better way to go, even if it is unpopular. So he takes this case to trial and he's able to convince the courts that his client is innocent. Now this was a huge win for Cicero and it gave him some measure of fame which allowed him to launch his political career. So he works his way up through the various political offices until he is elected the consul of Rome. Now the consulship of Rome, this is a really high elected office. In fact, it is the highest elected office that you can get to. Each year, the citizens of Rome would elect two consuls to serve a one-year term. And the consul is very much like the President of the United States. So, it is the highest civil authority, they are the head of state, and they are also the commander-in-chief of the army. And in fact, our founding fathers, they modeled the President of the United States off of the consulship in Rome. And so in 63 BC, while Cicero is the consul of Rome, he finds out that there is a conspiracy being led by a man named Lucius Catalina, or as we say in English, Catiline. What he wanted to do was overthrow the government, and he wanted to do so via a foreign army that was going to help him come in and take it over. Now, Catiline, he's a very interesting individual. He, too, at one point was running for the consulship. He was running on a platform of debt forgiveness and land reform, but he was struggling to get the votes he needed. And in fact, he tried to bribe some of the senators by giving them money in order to vote for him so that he could become consul. And when it became clear that he was going to lose, he started to plot in order to take over the Roman Republic. He was going to have Cicero assassinated along with several other senators. He would then take over the government and burn Rome to the ground. Now, when Cicero found out about this conspiracy, he convened the Senate, the Senate, and he ended up giving what became known as the Catiline Address. And this was an address where he talked about Catiline's conspiracy. It was an extemporaneous speech, and what I mean by extemporaneous is that he did so off the top of his head. He did not pre-write it ahead of time. He just spoke to the Senate, and is considered by many to be one of the greatest speeches of all time, and by some to be the greatest extemporaneous speech ever given. 
Through this speech, he was able to convince the Senate to come over to his side to actually believe in what he was talking about and it actually inspired Catalina to respond with violence. And so the Senate, because of this, they decide that they are going to declare martial law and they give absolute power and authority over to Cicero, who then goes after Catiline and drives him out of the city and defeats the foreign forces. Now Cicero, as a result of this, he is hailed as a hero and the savior of the Roman state. In 10th grade, I was in a Latin class and I had to translate this particular speech from Latin into English. Now Cicero, he gave this speech in a matter of about 45 minutes, but it took us nearly six months to translate the speech. We would translate, or in my case, butcher, about five to seven lines at a time. And as I began to translate it, I realized just how amazing this speech was. Not only was he able to bring people over to his side, but the fact is, his words were just so absolutely well chosen. For a man who was speaking off the top of his head, he constructed phrases in the most beautiful ways. He would use alliteration, he would use similes, metaphors, and he would do this in a way that was just really, really taking all of these elements that he knew about and putting them into a way that was just so convincing. Once we were done with that speech, my Latin teacher gave us a new assignment. She wanted us to give a speech in the same manner as Cicero. Now, not extemporaneously, but we had to talk about something that we cared about, a subject that was important to us. Then we had to use a lot of the literary devices that Cicero had used during his speech. And then we had to go and memorize the speech and give it before our class. Now, though you wouldn't know it today, I was absolutely terrified of this assignment. Not only had I not ever given a speech before in front of an audience, I never written one. The fact that we had to memorize it on top of all of that just made my stomach churn. So I worked to my best of my ability to write the speech and to memorize it. And the day came for me to give the speech. And so she calls my name and I walk up to the front and I can feel that my knees are kind of weak getting up there. I have like dry cotton mouth. I can barely get the words out. And I couldn't even really remember the words itself that I was supposed to say. And my stomach began to kind of churn and all of this. I felt like I was gonna throw up. But then I started to speak. I found the first word, it came out. And what's interesting is all those nerves began to subside and everything came into focus for me. And it was in this moment that I realized that this was something that I had somewhat of a gift for. Because unlike my peers who kind of struggled and some of them even stumbled over their speeches, for me, I was able to command the attention of the room. This was the first time in my life that I realized the power of oratory, the power of words to shape and impact the world around me. And it was from this assignment that I began to understand that depending on the size of your audience and how closely they are listening to you, how you have the ability to even change the tide of society as a result of the things that you say. And this brings us, of course, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929. He was the second of three children. His father was a pastor, the Reverend Michael King Sr. and his mother, Alberta King. 
So when King was growing up, he was friends with a young white boy whose parents owned a business across the street from his home. And they used to play together all the time until about the age of six, which was about 1935. At that time, that's when both of the young boys went to school. King, of course, went to a school for black children and his white friend went to a school for white children. And he came back from school one day and he came over to play with his friend and his friend's parents came out and they spoke to King and they said, look, our son can no longer be friends with you. And King said, well, why not? And they responded to him, well, we are white and you are colored. This is the first time that King has a memory of racism. And it was the first time that his parents, his family, had to sit him down and talk to him about the history of slavery in this country and the racism that resulted from it and what that meant for him personally. So King, at this moment in time, he decided at that moment in his mind that he was going to hate all white people from that point forward. And had it not been for the influence of his parents who told him that it was his Christian duty to love all people regardless of how people perceived him, he would have continued down that path. But they taught him also that by loving all people, that doesn't necessarily mean that you allow them to mistreat you or to demean your humanity. You do have to stand up for yourself. And this is something that King's father did all the time. King's father was a remarkable man in the sense that he was actively always resisting things about society that he felt were wrong. And this, of course, would become something that King would integrate into the civil rights movement much later in his life. So as an example, King and his father, they went to a shoe store in downtown Atlanta one day. They walked in and the white clerk told both of them that they needed to wait in the back in order to be served. King's father then said to the clerk, we will buy our shoes sitting here or we will buy nothing at all. And so as a result, they ended up leaving that store that day without buying any shoes. And King remembers that as they were walking down the street, his father said, as long as I have to live with this system, I will never accept it. And this is very important because when King saw what his father was doing, he understood that it was important to stand up to things that you felt were wrong, that you needed to stand up and speak out and try to invoke change. So King, he was a very smart young boy. He's very book smart. He loved opera. He could play the piano. He loved to read. And in particular, he loved to read the dictionary. He loved to go through the dictionary and he loved to learn various vocabulary words that he would then integrate into his speech. And perhaps the first instance of him showing that he had a real gift for oratory was among the fights that would occur among the boys in his neighborhood. Now, sometimes King would fight. But more often than not, he would use his words to talk down the aggressor. And this is the first instance of King being able to use his speech as a means to persuade a hostile audience. At the age of 15, far ahead of his peers, King took the entrance exams for Morehouse College and was accepted into Morehouse at the age of 15. 
He goes and he ends up studying sociology. He receives his BA in sociology, he graduates in 1948. Now King, of course, had grown up in the church because of his father, but he had a lot of problems with Christianity. He struggled with many of the beliefs of the Christian faith, but he also felt that the church was one of the best places to serve humanity. And so he decides that he's going to go to seminary like his father did, but he's going to be a minister that values rationality. He's going to be a rational minister whose messages are a force for respectful ideas, and they are going to really talk about the social gospel. Now, in looking at what he did, I hope that you can see a little bit of that in what I do, because I remember studying a lot of what King did and seeing that I agreed with his theology, I agreed with his approach, and I tried to follow down the path that he paved for me. So he enrolled in Crozer Theological Seminary, and it was there that he ends up studying Latin and Greek for the first time. And of course, he is exposed to the writings of Cicero. It is at seminary that he studies many of Cicero's speeches, and he adopts some of Cicero's style. He uses some of Cicero's stylistic choices, and you can see this actually in the speeches and sermons that he gives while in the civil rights movement. But what's interesting is that what we know of King's ascent to become a leader of the civil rights movement almost never happened. So during his third year of seminary, King became romantically involved with the white daughter of a German immigrant who worked in the cafeteria of Crozer. They fell deeply in love with each other. King planned to marry this woman. But eventually his classmates sat him down and told him that if he did go through with the marriage, if he was part of an interracial marriage, then he would not only find disdain from the white community, but he would often be rejected by the black community as well. And in fact, they said, look, if you go through with this, the likelihood of you being able to get a church in the South is going to be almost nil. On top of this, his mother was greatly distressed by the relationship, and eventually the pressure became too much for him, and he ended up breaking it off six months later. Now, for people who know King, they will tell you that he was devastated by this. He really, really loved this woman, and they believe that a big reason why he worked so hard during the Civil Rights Movement is that a part of him wanted to create a different world where he could have had that marriage. In 1951, he graduates from Crozer Theological Seminary and he begins his doctorate at Boston College in Systematic Theology. And it's while he is in Boston that he ends up meeting Coretta Scott. Now, the two of them come together and Coretta, she has the same activist spirit that King possesses. And the both of them, they really come together in believing that things need to change and they love each other as well. So they end up getting married in 1953, and in 1955, King graduates with his PhD in systematic theology. That is the same year, 1955, by the way, that King begins the Montgomery bus boycotts. He oversees that. And for those of you who may not remember what happened, essentially it was sparked by Rosa Parks. But King comes in and they come up with this whole plan where they are going to boycott the transit system. 
And as you can see from this photograph, what they decided to do was they came up with a carpool system. People would walk to work, people would bike to work, but they were not going to use the public transit, which ultimately almost bankrupted the entire transit system. And it made King a household name. And this boycott would begin a long and arduous journey of preaching and protest. Now, when we look back on that preaching and protest, what we often think about is we think, oh, it was a time when people were fighting for what was right, and we tend to whitewash it. We don't remember just how dangerous it was for people who were part of that. In fact, much of the black community would not come out to those protests because they were scared of the consequences, and understandably so. So when you went out to a protest, particularly in the South, you had to deal with the fact that likely you would be attacked by the police, you would likely be arrested by the police, and then on top of that, if you avoided being arrested, if you avoided being attacked, which many people didn't, Many of the police officers who worked on the force were part of the Ku Klux Klan. And they would take notes of the people who were present at these protests. And then at night, they would have groups of mobs, white mobs, who would come out, find certain people, take them out of their homes, and lynch them in the middle of the night. This was very serious. If you were going to be part of these protests, you were putting your life in danger. And this is why many of the leaders of the civil rights movement in different parts of the South struggled to find volunteers. But King's amazing oratory ability changed all that. Wherever King went, he was able to inspire people to sacrifice for the cause. He was able, because of his words, to get people to come out to marches, to come out to the protests. And so as a result, everybody wanted King to come to their town because they knew that if he was there, he would be able to inspire people to come to their side. And perhaps the greatest example of his oratory ability was on August of 1963 during the March on Washington when he gave his I Have a Dream speech. Now what's amazing about this speech is that we don't really remember the written part of it. Most of this speech was written. In fact, he wasn't the only one who wrote it. There were several different people who had worked on the speech. And we don't tend to remember the first part of the speech. What we remember is when he broke away from his notes and began speaking extemporaneously. And I want you to watch this. I think this is very interesting. What you will notice is that the moment that he breaks away, at first he's a little unsure if he wants to break away from his text and begin speaking, so he's a little shaky at first, but then when he catches his stride, he ends up going into what we all know today. So let's watch the end of this speech. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. 
that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. Yeah. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Now, this speech is considered to be one of the greatest speeches of all time in American history. And in fact, some people would say it is the greatest speech within American history. This speech came at a very important time because what most people don't remember is that prior to this speech, the civil rights movement was losing steam. People were struggling to get volunteers out to marches. It seemed like nothing was actually going to change. They had been protesting for almost 10 years and the problem just seemed intractable. But after that speech, it gave people motivation to truly try to invoke change. And as a result of many other events that occurred following that speech, they were able to enact the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So what this tells us is that words have this amazing power. The words you speak matter because they literally have the ability to shape the world in which we live. Your words can build people up or tear people down. Your words can enjoin people to your cause or motivate them to work against you. Your words can inspire people to completely change their lives or to remain exactly as they are. In this way, the words that we speak they have the ability to change the world and the society in which we live in the ways that nothing else can. And Jesus, he understood and knew this better than almost anybody. 
So Jesus, when he comes on the scene in the middle of Galilee, he's walking around, and what he does is he starts preaching a message, and that message becomes known as the gospel. Now that word gospel in Greek simply means good news. And today we read a scripture from the letter of 1 John that talks to us about the idea, the core, the fundamental aspect of what that message was all about, which is simply that God is love and God loves you. Now this message that God is love and God loves you, this is something that we often kind of make fun of today. We'll say, oh yeah, yeah, God loves you, right? But you have to remember at the time, this was a revolutionary message. This was a message that nobody had ever heard up until that point in time. At this point in history, most people thought of God as a judge who was watching over your life. The idea that God was somebody who was there for your benefit was totally off the radar. For them, God was something to be feared. And so when Jesus talked about God, he did so in ways that nobody had ever heard before. When Jesus talked about God, he said, God's not out to get you. God wants the best for you. But in order for that to happen, you have to go through a personal transformation where you care more about others than you do about yourself. And it was this beautiful idea that we could transform the world if we are willing to sacrifice for one another. And so when Jesus starts preaching this message, of course, his disciples initially hear it and they like the message. And and they spread that out to a few other people who who like the message as well. And then each generation, they start hearing the message and it spreads because each subsequent generation says, that message is very meaningful. I like that message. I want to follow that message until eventually Christianity becomes the largest religion in the world. Now, one of the reasons why this happens is because at the end of the gospel, what you heard me read this morning, is that Jesus tells his disciples that they have to keep spreading the good news. And so one of the aspects of being Christian, one of our responsibilities, is making sure that we are keeping Jesus's words and his message alive, which frankly is kind of hard for us as Presbyterians. We are not very good at speaking about our faith. We kind of keep it to ourselves. But the fact is, in the day and time in which we live, we need to be talking about God's love now more than ever because it is through God's love that we can transform our world. Like Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus had a dream. And in fact, Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream comes from Jesus. Jesus had a dream where he wanted to create a world where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. Now, in order for that dream to become a reality, we need to start using the power of our words to talk about God's love. The more we talk about God's love, the more we allow that dream to come to life, the more we allow that dream to become manifest in our world, and that is something that needs to happen right now. We need to start talking more about God's love in the world that we live in today. So as we've talked about for the past several weeks, you all know that every week there have been protests around the country where minorities and white people who have joined them have come together to talk about the treatment of minorities in this country. And they are coming out and they are protesting in order to speak out against that treatment, the discrimination that they feel is a part of our society. Now, I know that there are many people in this congregation who agree with the protesters and that there are some people who disagree. 
Now, regardless of which side you are on, I want you to understand that when we're talking about God's love, God's love is something that can really help in this particular moment. So a lot of us in this church, I'm sure would say, in fact, if I went around and I was able to ask everybody, do you believe that God's love is the most powerful force in the universe? I'm sure almost everybody in here would say, yes, absolutely. But it's one thing to pay lip service to that. It's another thing to live it out. And let me give you an example of how you live this out. So when we're talking about love, when we're talking about you loving another person, what that really means is that you are willing to listen to them. So when you love your spouse, when you love your friend or your child, what that means is, is that even when you disagree with them, you're going to hear them out. You're gonna to listen to what they have to say. Because when you love somebody, you want to be able to listen so you can move the relationship forward. And that is essentially what we are looking at today. We as Christians need to promote God's love by listening. Those people who are out there protesting, they are protesting for good reason. They feel there is something fundamentally wrong with our society. And it is incumbent upon us as Christians to listen to what they have to say, to say, look, I believe in God's love, and so I love you as a person, and because I love you as a person, I'm gonna listen to you. Now, whether you agree or disagree, we all need to listen. We all need to figure out where they're coming from, because that is what transforms the world. When we listen and when we hear, it allows us to work together to create a world where everybody has the ability to thrive. Rather than using our words to tear people down, which is very easy to do in this instance, we can say, well, I don't agree with what they're saying, and you just cast it aside. That tears people down. We, as Christians, we need to build people up. So we need to listen to what they're saying, and we need to say, we love you, we want to listen to you, and we want to do our best to help create that world. Because it is through God's love that I truly believe that we can create that world that Jesus was dreaming about, that Martin Luther King was dreaming about. But we simply have to be willing to speak about it in our lives, to go out of our way to make sure that we demonstrate God's love to everyone, even those who we struggle with, who we disagree with. And we need to make sure that we are listening so that we can create that world and that those dreams of Martin Luther King Jr. and Jesus can become a reality. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.